Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined in studio by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and political reporter, Sarah Barden. You're both very welcome. Sort of quiet week on the political front, but you've managed to rustle up a pretty good page one story uh, this morning, Fia. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the traditional Easter break when most people are on their holidays. I think it's it's... One of those real downtimes for politicians, they kind of take the Easter weekend to decompress. But uh, there's always stuff going on. And this morning in the paper, we're reporting that the newly appointed public expenditure spokesman for Fianna Fáil, Barry Cowan, has said that he doesn't believe that the confidence supply deal will be extended past its uh, kind of end date later this year or whenever the budget is passed. Now, he did add in a proviso that, of course, it's a matter between the leaders. But I think Barry Cowan is the first person to publicly say what everybody else has privately, that they don't see this being extended. There is a kind of a, there will be a, a shadow boxing process that goes on about Fianna Gael asking Fianna Fáil to extend it. Fianna Fáil saying the deal itself doesn't allow for discussions or review to happen until after the third budget has passed. So we're going to go into a process of a couple of months now. Once the referendum is away. Of absurd posturing. Of absurd posturing and a slow bicycle race. I would think about the collapse of the government and who is to blame for the collapse of the government on an election. I think the most uh, clean, the cleanest scenario some people in Fianna Fáil see is that the budget is passed. You go into two, three weeks of tiresome negotiations, trudging them down Marion Street again, and then lo and behold, you find that you can't agree and you need an election. But against that, uh, before the doll broke for Easter, I was speaking to a Fine Gael minister who said that, well, if we get, any, if we sense that. Fianna Fáil aren't going to renew the deal. We're not going to hang around. So I think it's all to play for, but there is, it's going to be a game of it's, pinning the blame it, on the other to cause the election. Is it all going to be a bit ridiculous, sir? With them both trying to shift the blame one to the other and they might both come out with egg in their faces. For sure, that's what we've had for the past three years is really that shadow boxing yeah. between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and members of the Independent uh, Alliance and so forth trying to claim credit for everything that's that's come and gone. Um, I think what Barry Cowan has reflected is probably a, a great sense of frustration within Fianna Fáil that while they think that they've had all this influence on government decisions and they've had many public fights in um, between with Fine Gael, that it's, it's, it's come to nothing for them, as we've seen in the opinion polls. Fine Gael and, and Leo Varadkar are riding high and Fianna Fáil are, 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 somewhat, are somewhat stalling. Um, my understanding is that when Micheál Martin uh, met with his Fianna Fáil TDs last week when he... Um, when he was announcing his reshuffle, he said to them that his priority was to get the budget through and the finance bill and the social welfare bill. So it's not an automatic that once the budget is agreed that they would go back And what's the normal time frame on all that? A couple of months. Well, dependent. I mean, usually they try and get the finance bill through pretty rapidly, mm. but the social welfare bill tends to take a little bit longer and it doesn't have the same sense of priority sometimes. So late November, early December to get all that sort of housework out of the way? Uh, yeah, potentially you could if you really had the, you know, if you really had the gumption to go to the people, you could have it done within a matter of weeks. But if you wanted Days to, even, if you wanted to. If you wanted to prolong it either, you could mm. prolong it too. But he did say in his commentary to the TDs that it was... 
his belief that if they didn't get those, if he didn't get the, the budget through, the finance bill through and the social welfare bill through, that Fianna Fáil would not have credibility with the electorate. And they said, he said that in order for them to go to the uh, country on a and an even platform with Fine Gael that they had to get those uh, th- those three things through. Um, and I think is he supported in that? Do you think by all his parliamentary party would some of them prefer to go before the budget? Uh, no, I think it's kind of it's fairly uniform that they want to see the budget through. The question mark is whether you can agree the budget in a situation where there's so much to spend and you will have um, the jostling going on and the knowledge that an election is in the the near future. Like, we have already seen a degree of that to a certain extent. Like, the position in government has hardened against spending all the money that's available to them. Fianna Fáil's view is very much that they want to spend basically everything that the fiscal rules allow, which would at this stage is 3.2 billion minus 500 for a rainy day fund, plus whatever else is out at the end. So, I think, you know, everybody wants the budget to pass. And I think there is an acknowledgement that in this day and age, it would be pretty catastrophic or wouldn't look well with the electorate if we were going to the country with a budget in a limbo, effectively. No budget would be passed. I think that is a big concern for all of them. I think as well, though, what, what's happened now is a reflection of a great deal of, of frustration within Fianna Fáil. Um, over the past number of weeks, there has been division lines drawn within the party, primarily over the issue of the uh, ref- forthcoming referendum on the Eighth Amendment. But what it has done is um, a lot of the class of 2016, as we like to term them, are very frustrated with the old school Fianna Fáilers and how they've how they've conducted their business. In, in what way? What, what, what way are they conducting their business that's causing that frustration? Well, for for example, with reference to, to Barry Cowan, I suppose a lot of people were frustrated that he engaged in a lot of public fights with Simon Coveney and lost on almost every single one of them. Um, there are others who are for, who are frustrated, particularly with the leader um, and his position on the Eighth Amendment, but also the way in which he hasn't consulted with the parliamentary party before he makes key decisions sort of like aloof. that. He's very much his own person and he thinks, I suppose he doesn't um, engage in consultation with the parliamentary party before he makes key decisions. It's it's done with his key advisers and the parliamentary party are informed afterwards when the decision is made. And that has led to a lot of frustration. And I have heard from senior members of the party, and this is, I suppose, just a, a throwaway comment, but... When lunchtime arrives and they're all in the canteen, if a, a seasoned member of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party joins the class of 2016, that there are a lot of, you know, ushered tones then and the conversation seems to end pretty quickly. So I think people in Fianna Fáil are, are, are kind of getting to grips with the fact that Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael are slightly eclipsing them and they're getting no credit and for anything. do I take it then as the younger members or at least the members who are more recent entrants who are kind of chafing more at that, they feel that maybe that they're not being given their head. I mean, presumably, I don't know if it's purely a generational thing, but they're looking at the mm. Owen Murphys and Leo Varadkar's and Pascal Donoghue's and they're of a of a, a younger generation than the people who are still who are currently leading I think most of Fianna Fáil. In fairness now, there is a, there's a, there is a bright bunch within Fianna Fáil um, and they're, they're young too, but I suppose they don't come to the fore in Fianna Fáil in the same way that they've come to the fore within Fianna Gael. And that's a reflection of, as well, um, their communication strategy. So, for example, you know, when RT broadcasts come up or indeed podcasts like this come up, Fianna Fáil tend to put forward seasoned spokespersons because I suppose they feel as if they can maybe trust them a little bit better than the class of 2016. But that has led to a great deal of frustration within Fianna Fáil. And we saw that, again, not to keep going back to the Eighth Amendment referendum, but people like Mary Butler, who would be really well supported within the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, um, coming out very much and saying that she has been prevented from 
speaking on RTE broadcasts on on uh, news talk on you know commenting to wider publications and so forth because people like Dara Kaliri, Barry Kay, Michael McGrath, Thomas Byrne, Timmy Dooley, these are the people that you see represent for all male names all mm. the time. Yeah. Mm. And I think that is, you know, that, that essentially if you look in a very cold and calculated way at Fine Gael since Leo Varadkar took over and you look at Fianna Fáil, they are, I suppose, are of a particular vintage, a particular gender. And if you look across at Fine Gael, they're fresh. Mm. It's, it's a very... just Fine Gael, it's Sinn Féin. If you look yeah. towards Fine Gael, as Sarah said, you have quite a fresh front bench. Um, most people are below 50. Uh, Leo Varadkar is below 40. Simon Coveney's mid-40s. Owen Murphy's mid-30s. You look across at Sinn Féin, you have Mary Lou MacDonald, Ono Brin, uh, Pierce Doherty, uh, you know, uh, Louise O'Reilly. These people are of, are quite obviously of a of different generation as a political editor. Pat Lee had noted in a, in a previous column. And then you look from a superficial level at the Fianna Fáil front bench and you have Michal Martin, Willie O'Dea, Eamon O'Queeve. Like these no, are not... You're, these, you're, you're definitely picking the older yeah, the, members but, of but that. But like there is, but there, there, there is, there is... But, in a way, the reshuffle that happened last happened happened last week that a lot of the class of 2016. So, bear in mind the survivors of 2011, that Derek Leary, Michael McGrath, and Collins, not those guys, the people below them, they kind of felt that in order for the reshuffle to be of of significance, that Martin had to basically end a career of people who were of his. And that didn't happen. That at all. did not happen. Nobody and lost a job. Nobody lost the job. The way he made space was he created a new job for Derek Cleary, mm-hmm. made him deputy leader and head of policy development, and then did a bit of shuffling around with that, I suppose, leeway he had. But he didn't end the careers of the people at the younger, I suppose, cohort would have wanted. And that might sound cruel in a way, but it perhaps some people being ungenerous to me, how Martin have said, yeah, well, if he ends the career of Willie O'Dea and Eamon O'Queeve, then suddenly he becomes the oldest person in the room. And that wouldn't do, sit too well with do him. Do we inevitably end up with all this, Sarah, with, I mean, the first thing I think of when I think of Barry Cowan is pugnacious um, and that I expect a more pugnacious attitude from, from Fianna Fáil to Fine Gael's budgetary proposals and, and public expenditure and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and we've all heard him talk already about how Fianna Fáil is the party of investing in, in public housing and how it'll be, you know, it'll be more proactive with that. Are we going to end up with a classic Irish general election with Fine Gael saying we need to be careful of the purse strings and Fianna Fáil saying let's go and spend the money? I think we'll have pretty much a repeat of the last general election with just uh, with a different slogan for Fine Gael, uh, presumably, but where Fianna Fáil will try and expose Fine Gael as a party that is out of touch with reality and that they are the party that's on the ground across the country working for an Ireland for all to use their election slogan, which they will continue to use in any forthcoming general election. And then you'll have Fine Gael trying to expose Fianna Fáil as, you know, and, and we've seen this recently again with uh, with Barry Ken when he proposed uh, measures for the building sector and to reduce VAT and to reduce construction costs mm. for builders, etc. And Pascal Dunhu and Noel Murphy and Leo Varadkar, for that matter, highlighting that Fianna Fáil was a party for the developers and the builders once again. I think that's mm. those same battle lines Do you think that, that still sticks? Um, yeah, well, I mean, but that doesn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you can't have... It's a great irony that, of course, the Fine Gael proposed the exact same policy nine months previously. Um, but Sarah's right, like the, the Barry Cowan at the weekend, I saw him proposing an SSIA scheme for for house, for you know accumulating your deposit. And my understanding is that it's over and above what's already there in terms of the income tax refund scheme. So it may, it's kind of, when we had this debate started about, you know, will it be the traditional Fianna Fáil spend Fine Gael 
frugal uh, nature. I kind of that's a bit cliched, isn't it? Nobody's going to fall into that trap. Like Fine Gael saying, oh, we're not going to spend all this money. It's almost like one of those cartoons where you see the hole in the ground, a bit of straw put on top of it. The trap is apparent to everybody around it, apart from the person who's walking into it. Yeah, and well, Fine Gael have walked into that trap. Fine Gael have walked into that trap. Like it seems past. to be the way they're going. And actually, if you read Pascal Donahue's opinion piece in the Sunday Business Post at the weekend, it was very interesting. It was a kind of framing. It was getting him ready to frame the debate in that way, you know, that he was kind of casting Ireland as a Northern European country. Now, we're not going to spend all the money. But the ca- that is Pascal Donoghue. What the Taoiseach thinks might be a different factor. I think and we he- saw that last year in the budget where Pascal Donoghue had a many idea about how to, you know, be very prudent with the with mm. the public finances, but then the politics come into play mm. and leave rag critics over. And say, so speaking of politics, speaking of a specific issue, given that it is the week in which the teachers have, the teachers unions have their conferences, and um, they always seem to be militant, but they seem to be particularly <laughs> militant this um, this uh, this year, and Richard Bruton's been given a very hard time, largely over this issue of equality for teachers who've entered the profession since 2011. Is that something that the government will have to sort out because it's an open goal for Fianna Fáil otherwise to say, we'll sort this out for you. I think they've already accepted in principle that they, they will sort it out. It's just a matter of when they do. Um, they've said, look, they, they effectively, they've said that they acknowledge that this has to be dealt with, but it will be dealt with in a wider process. Fianna Fáil are, I suppose, given what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, are getting ready for the election and they have said, we will do this for you almost immediately. Now, I think what Derek Cleary was the previous public spending spokesman. He said, we acknowledge that it can't be done in one year, but we absolutely want to see this to happen in the next budget and Barry Cowan just uh, this morning or on the radio with Sean O'Rourke said that yeah Fempy wasn't being unwound quick enough so they're clearly identifying that and I was struck by the Twitter account of Thomas Byrne the Fianna Fáil education spokesman who has been gleefully tweeting his presence at the teacher conferences in the last few days so there clearly is an effort on behalf of Fianna Fáil to get in and win those constituencies teachers nurses the public sector unions it's Fianna Fáil identifying those as kind of part of their winning coalition and one of our colleagues remarked that Michal Martin hadn't been seen at a number of union conferences for a couple of years and then he went to three dinners and one night a couple of Fridays ago. So you can tell where that's going. I think it's, it's, it's classic Fianna Fáil though, isn't it? Trying to, you know, warm themselves to the public sector unions again because let's face it's very, it. It's very traditional Fianna Fáil positioning, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also, I suppose if you look at it, it's kind of politically very smart politics. because yeah. these guys always vote, you know. Teachers always vote. Guards, nurses, mm-hmm. these are the people that will come out uh, in uh, all types of weather to to cast their vote. I think, you know, for Fine Gael, um, the, t- the teacher won so close to an impending possible general election. Uh, they don't want to be seen to uh, irritate any of the teachers. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw them provide somewhat of a pathway to rectifying the imbalance um, in pay between young teachers and, and older ones. But um, I think it's really it was really just an attempt to call off the wolves, really. And now Fianna Fáil have identified a very particular issue with regards to teachers' pay, and they're going to you know they're going to seize upon it. I mean, teachers will always have an issue with regards to their pay, um, but the difficulty for Fine Gael is is that Mary Mitchell O'Connor, their Minister for Higher Education, the Minister of State um, at the Department of Education, John Halligan, have both said that they think it should be rectified promptly and Richard Bruton has always been very cautious and careful now you have the opposition party railroading through saying if we were, if we were in government we'd do it because today what or does tomorrow. promptly mean because I mean it, this doesn't just apply to teachers because there's a knock on mm. effect there are other public service workers you know who would be affected if there's some full restitution very fast 200 million a year or something of that sort I think you're, you're talking like you know 
you never underestimate the uh, the fear that an approaching election strikes into people. I think if some politicians had their way, it would be done overnight without, without kind of uh, much thought given to the consequences across the rest of the public sector. I think that is probably what Pascal Donahue was thinking of. And there probably is an unspoken, I know there is an attitude in Fine Gael that they now want to build a big tent. This, the idea of uh, Radker as the new Bertie who can take in everything, you know, that there is that there is a bit of a reach out onto the unions, but I think they're probably fighting a lost cause because, you know, the union vote, I would think, maybe Sarah would probably uh, offer a view on it as well, has probably drifted back to Fianna Fáil in the last year or two. Fianna Fáil have been quite aggressive in targeting, like last week, Michal Martin in the middle of numerous controversies affecting the government leaders' questions raised the issue of teachers' pay in the middle of conference week. Like, that tells you everything you need doesn't to know. It doesn't show on the opinion polls, though, Sarah. It doesn't, but, like, let's be honest, it, never, it didn't show on the opinion polls last time around either. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mm-hmm. all walked into the last general election. I'm sure we sat in this room saying that mm-hmm. it was likely the Fine Gael and Labour were going to be re-elected. we're running a terrible campaign. And and never that's stuff. <laughs> 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 we must take those files down <laughs> at the end of the But, like, they... They perform, they outperform the polls, that's for certain. Now, whether they can outperform the polls to the extent that they need to outperform the polls, that remains to be seen. But I think Martin has played a very, and this is Martin all over it, he's played a very quiet but very significant game. He's out canvassing every single day of the week. Uh, when he finishes up in the doll, he's out in a Dublin constituency canvassing, uh, canvassing and doesn't want to be taken to neighbourhoods where you're well known. He wants to go into neighbourhoods that are, you know, are known as Fine Gael households or Sinn Féin battlegrounds. He wants you to take to, take him to them. He's also, as Vic says, in the la- in leaders' questions last week, he raised teachers' pay, but he also raised the plight of Section 39 workers who have who have not had the same um, pay restoration as other members of the uh, of the health service. Uh, he's he's identified. He's the building blocks of a winning coalition. Yeah. As yeah. he sees it in place, whether that falls in the place, but he's quite clearly gone, those, and, and those, to be fair, those. it also ties in with his vision of Fianna Fáil as yeah. a social democratic party. He is, party yeah, he is a social democrat yeah. at heart. Yeah. And, and back in, you know, the bad days of 09 to 11, you know, people around the table would say, there's one person who balked at what had to be done. Sometimes it was Michal Martin because it went against all his instincts to do what had to be done. Listen, from everything you're saying, Sarah, it sounds to me that the last thing that either Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil would want is a presidential election. Yes, I think that's uh, I think that's fair enough to say, but I think there are a number of moving parts in that. You know, Sinn Féin, Mary Lou McDonald said uh, in to a couple of reporters at, at the weekend that she favours a contest, and if there's a contest, Sinn Féin will be putting forward a candidate. And I think if Sinn Féin put forward a candidate, um, and, you know, I should say that they're you know they are only willing to participate if there is a contest. They won't they won't trigger a contest. They won't trigger. They, so somebody else needs to be go. Through, to go successfully through the nomination process in order for Sinn Féin, the slumbering beast, to wake and <laughs> nominate a uh, candidate. Yeah, um, who that person may be, I don't know. Now, Fiat was writing about it this morning and, and, and rightly pointing out, as I said in a previous podcast, not to his liking, but that Jared Crockwell would struggle to get the nominations required. There are a couple of other people who've been mentioned. Yeah, names to conjure with here. Yeah, give them yeah. to us. Uh, Mark Daly and Keith Swanick are mentioned in uh, Fiat's yeah. Piece and, uh, this morning. Who would have known such a ray of talent was awaiting yeah. in the Shannon for Oracle Kadig, you know, aeronautical entrepreneur. Yeah, and also Michael Fitzmaurice, who was who has told his local newspaper that he's not averse to running for the office of president. I don't think these people actually realise. I, 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 I think one of us should decline to rule it out here and say, get the ball rolling. No comment. We are in that kind of phase of madness, aren't they? I have to say, you know, I think I'm more likely to be Ireland's first black president than <laughs> Kevin Charkey is, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and there, there's, there's, there's just this kind of it's, silliness it's, going yeah, around it, at the there, moment. And you know? The thing about presidential elections, the leading them, they are always, always, there's always silliness. Because it's such a kind of rigmarole to get a nomination and you have to go through such a kind of mm. public process to do it. It will drag on for a couple of months. Um, we are at the beginning of the silly phase. And when you get to summer, it'll be like, you know, wall to wall. Uh, yeah. Who can get a nomination? I think the, prob- the problem is that neither of the big parties want it. Uh, there is, uh, I don't, I would think that Fine Gael may just decide that if Michael D wants it, they will support him because they've had such a bad experience in presidential elections down the years. You don't spend the money. Fianna Fáil kind of flirted with the idea a couple of months ago, kind of gone off if they don't want one now either. Um, and the timing you is could, terrible the timing in terms of the terrible. timing we've been well, talking timing, about yeah, earlier, thinking, isn't it? But you're thinking, you're, thinking, you're not only thinking uh, general, locals and Europeans and Springfield. And the parties have had huge significance to locals because they are breeding grounds for the next uh, generation yeah. of politicians. They, have, they see them as far more significant, I would think, than from an electoral point of view, than a presidential election. And, you know, there is precedent for... A big party to say, no, actually, we're going to sit it out. 2004 and the Kenny, I know Fine Gael were in a bit of a different space than Fianna Fáil are now because they were really in the doldrums. Kenny was rebuilding the party, but he said, even if someone else enters the race against Mary McAleese, because there was talk of Michael D at the time, there was talk of Eamon Ryan, he said, we are going to stick with our support for Mary McAleese. Mm. And it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that you could see both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael saying, even if there's a race, he's what, we, what we've said previously in this podcast, I think you said this area, is that if, and this is a very big if, a mm-hmm. Jared Crockwell type figure manages to get the 20 votes and they're on the ballot paper, then we're on to a, another phase. The party yeah, I think so. I mean, look, if there's if if Jared Crockwell or Mark Daly or Patrick O'Kadig or whoever else gets the nominations, I think we're in a totally different mm-hmm. ballgame then because if there is a contest, Sinn Féin will participate. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Fianna Fáil, um, perhaps Fine Gael, uh, I don't think Fianna Fáil would allow Sinn Féin to have a Sinn Féin uh, presidential candidate and a, and a huge focus during a presidential campaign mm-hmm. on Sinn Féin and the an independent. Exactly. I don't think Fianna Fáil would allow that. On the ground. Now, if you look at um, our, our rival publication, the Irish Independent, former Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn uh, said today, and actually, it's, I actually think it's a great interview. He says that... Um, he, he he will go for it if there's a contest and Michael D decides that he wants to stand aside. He's willing to consider it, but he'd stand as an independent, not as a Fianna Well, Fáil he's not candidate. a member of Fianna Fáil anymore, is he? No, but he could potentially seek the support mm. of his party. I, I mean, like, we're all talking about Mary McCallaghan being Fianna potentially Fáil a Fianna Fáil Fáil noting, Did they not expel Bertie Ahern from the party? Uh, no, he chose to resign. He chose to, he chose to resign, he chose he, to resign he, on fear after, of expulsion, as yeah, far yeah, as I remember. Yeah. There were, okay. He basically kind of sniffed the wind. But and he said also said out. in the interview that he's spoken a lot to Michael D. Higgins and Michael D. Higgins is running again. Hmm. And I think if it comes down to it and you have a Jared Crockwell or other type figure versus Michael D. Higgins, I think there'd be a lot of pressure on Jared Crockwell or whoever else <laughs> to step aside and let Michael hmm. D. Higgins Because run that would, you know, it's, it's an election and every, who knows what's going to happen, but that would be an absurd election in that it would end up with a kind of a Putin-esque type uh, a Putin-esque um, yeah. type, type <laughs> result. I mean, I, I would predict, that, you know, 80%, 20% or something, yeah, something of that, that sort. That's, that's the pressure that would not be a great that, turnout that, and a big waste of money. Frankly. That's the pressure um, that might even be brought to bear on Sinn Féin. If they, like, like a lot of people who will be inclined in the general election to vote for Sinn Féin would probably vote for Michael D in a presidential election. You know, left-leaning, you know, attaches to the same causes... So I think the only reason that might deter Sinn Féin from signing, if it's basically blocked off from Michael D, 
the pressure would then come to bear, you know, do you want to put the country through the expense and the effort and the energy of a, of a presidential election when it looks like there's only going to be one winner? I thought the Bertie interview was brilliant because, you know, I've long suspected that Bertie Hearn just does this to really get up Michal Martin's nose, mm. that there is no love lost between the pair of them. He's yeah. good and every time he gets the opportunity to kind of annoy Michal Martin, he'll float something out there. I thought it was a brilliant interview this morning, you know, well, maybe not this time, but the next time, I'm sure, come back to me and then if Michael <laughs> D says it, like, it was just Bertie all over, you know? Now, speaking of our friends across the river in independent newspapers, as a former employee of that august institution, FIAC, how do you feel about the allegations in an affidavit from the Office of Corporate Enforcement that journalists' emails were um, where journalists' data was removed from the building and interrogated by a third party outside it's the It's extremely state? serious, you know. Uh, you just have to look at the names of the journalists on the list. Um, Maeve Sheehan, Sam Smith, um, kind of journalists of renown, um, particular Sam's coverage of the Mariarty Tribunal's coverage of Dennis O'Brien, the uh, largest shareholder in independent, in, in independent news and media, um, senior executives in the company, Joe Webb, I noticed uh, mentioned in coverage this morning. And you would kind of have to think to what end were these um, emails being accessed. I know Leslie Buckley has, in the affidavit, said it was due to a cost-cutting exercise. But the, the names on the list, I think for any kind of access to journalist data when protection of sources is absolutely paramount for our trade and faith in our trade, I think is hugely damaging, not just for the independent, but, but for the media generally. Like, Have you, you know? talked to your former colleagues about this at all? I haven't really talked to them in detail about it. Um, I just noticed Sam on the uh, news yesterday saying that he wasn't told in advance. He read about it in the paper. He had heard whisperings that he may be mentioned in this and then he wasn't, it wasn't confirmed to him until he actually read it in the Irish Independent yesterday that he was uh, one of those involved. I think from a political point of view, everybody acknowledges that it is extremely serious but the classic thing is that nobody wants to say it. And, you know, there is fear, like independent news media is the biggest news group in the country, aside from RTE, which is the biggest uh, media organisation. And, you know, they do have an influential role in the more than ourselves in election coverage. And there would be a fear of getting involved. I would think most politicians I spoke to yesterday asking what they thought are like, you know, it's terrible, but we're not going to say anything. You know, the classic line from Sir Humphrey to Jim Hacker when he's about to do something brings to mind, you know, Minister, that would be the bravest thing you've ever done if someone was to stand up and uh, have a go at the end of over this, or even express concern about it. Um, but Not that is not to say... You, it, you, it, you it think cannot, they won't even express concern I about think it. they will. It cannot be ignored. I don't think you cannot ignore it to the extent that if a minister or a Taoiseach or a leader of the opposition is at a press conference, they have to they'll be asked a question. They can't avoid it, but they are not going to be volunteering any opinions on it, I would think, as of now. It's... It's a, it's a huge issue, Sarah, but I'm not quite sure where it goes from a political perspective or what its impact is. No, and I think, you know, like it's uh, from my perspective, I would say that it's the, the biggest data breach at a, a company in Ireland um, ever. And I would, if I was a, an employee of INM or indeed a former employee of INM, I'd be extremely concerned about the revelations. You know, I think there's a couple of questions, um, you know, in particular, there's a lot of implications for the people that you contacted as an employee of INM. Were you know mm. were there was their data breached? Also, you know, I mean, especially as Fiac said, in a trade like ours where you rely upon sources and you do your utmost to protect those sources, for those sources that their information to be compromised in this manner, I mean, I think that's. It's it's a very frightening prospect for everybody involved, and indeed, you know, I mean, us as colleagues have mem- have had many a contact with members sure, of, of I and M across yeah. uh, across the years. Was our data or and our information also accessed? You know, from the nineteen people that we know of, they go back decades within uh, I and M. I mean, they're, they're not all household names, but even some of the names that aren't household names are kind of 
key figures in the history of modern Irish media. Absolutely. Back. I mean, they may not be known to the people on the street, but in terms of, I suppose, media organisations, you know, they're up, they're up there. Um, and I think, that, as I said, they go back as far as... And I, I, I don't know enough about INM, but I think that they go as far back as 1999. Mm. So, you know, that's that's quite worrying. To, you know, we're now in 2018 and we're only realising the extent of this data breach now. I think a lot of questions need to be asked about who, you know, where is the data now? What was it accessed? What was obviously what was it accessed for? And can the people who were in contact with members of INM, can they be confident that their information wasn't breached also? You know, it's... I think it's a it's a really frightening prospect for everybody, not not just in media organisations, but the fact that that can happen mm. at the extent that it has happened is a worrying prospect for all. And just to reiterate again that these allegations are unproven for the moment, but are the subject of investigation. Um, the interesting thing as well, I think, is the role of the ODCE, you know, has been much maligned in recent years over how it handled various investigations. It's had a bad run yeah. and, you know, um, they really seem to have got under teeth into this particular investigation. I think that's another factor that would be interesting to see how it plays out. We will see. Listen, one last thing. Um, The biggest news story of the last week, Sarah, has been the the verdict of the Belfast rape trial and there's been endless coverage of it. And really, I think still to this day that that those stories still rank very high and the most read on on irishtimes.com. It's not per se a political issue at all. It's It's a very personal story. The individuals in question were found innocent. But the reaction... To the uh, to the verdict was in itself quasi political and took the form of demonstrations and social media, a very strong social media reaction. At least one politician got into trouble about his reaction to to uh, to, um, to the um, verdict. Um, does this impact on the broader? political system in any way. I mean, there have been some statements by government ministers in reaction to the debate that that this has sparked. Yeah, I think the acquittal of the four men in the Belfast rape trial has sparked a national conversation with regards to, first of all, how rape trials are conducted in the South, but also how they're conducted in the North. Uh, Over the past number of days, we've seen ministers respond with sort of policy announcements. So that shows the extent of the concern in the wider uh, public as to the... um, to the trial and how it was conducted. For instance, Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, has said that he would review all aspects of rape trials and whether the complainant in cases should be afforded, afforded legal protection, how you deal with rape uh, cases sooner, whether guards should be given additional uh, training. Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald, whose party potentially could be in government if the executive ever is restored, um, has said that she would also like to see changes to the way rape Uh, cases are conducted in the north, whether um, the accused should also have their anonymity protected in the same way as uh, the complainant and whether media and indeed the public should have the same level of access to to, uh, cases and trials in the north. And then, you know, we've seen in recent days a kind of drip feed of, you know, now we're going to have consent classes in primary school. The Minister for Health, Simon Harris, has also said that he wants to revamp sexual education in primary and secondary school. Um, I think the level of, I suppose, commentary about the Belfast rape trial has sparked this wider uh, conversation and ministers are reacting to a level of concern that isn't necessarily just pinpointed towards that case, but I suppose it's given given a voice to a lot of the frustrations that maybe advocacy groups here have had um, with regards to cases um, of sexual assault. And, you know, it does... Particularly the rights of a complainant or the experience which a complainant undergoes in our adversarial legal system. Yeah, well, it's a very adversarial legal system. And, you know, um, 
Conor Gallagher has done exceptional work on this and, you know, p- pointed to the uh, low number of cases that eventually make it to court and the low number of convictions that ever um, that ever arise from them. And so, uh, you know, Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and Women's Aid have raised this for you know, the best part of a decade. But I think what's happened in recent weeks has given a new focus to it, whether it will materialise to anything, you know. And we've seen the protests um, on Saturday. It was held by Solidarity TD uh, Ruth Coppinger, but I think was attended by a couple of other politicians. Lynn Ruan, the independent senator, I think was there. Um, that that protest seemed to be turned into a little bit more of a political event rather than focusing on, I suppose, what, what many of the people were there for. Um, it, when you say a political event, because of the presence of the politicians in itself or because of what was being said? A lot of the commentary um, in the speeches in the aftermath of the uh, of the protest focused on repealing the Eighth Amendment, how um, the government and the political establishment, as they refer to it, have ignored this issue for, for years and, you know, how maybe politicians don't like talking about sex, they don't like talking about sexual assault, they don't like talking about women's issues because they're uncomfortable for you know, in a male dominated Mm -hmm. uh, profession, it's very uncomfortable for politicians to talk about it, so I think it became uh, more about I suppose, that sort of issues and indeed the forthcoming referendum on the Eighth Amendment So, uh, I just wanted to ask you that do you think it has any consequences for the way in which the debate and the campaign around the referendum, I mean obviously there isn't a direct parallel between between the two, but but there the reaction to the rape trial can be framed within the context of um, a, a feminist movement, the Me Too movement, a number of other things, which definitely tap into uh, substantial parts of the Repeal the Eighth movement also. Yeah, I think they tap into them, but do I think that it's going to shape the debate from here until May 25th? I, you know, I, I don't think so, to be honest. I think a lot of the people who were... Um, who were on social media tweeting um, about the Belfast rape trial are members of uh, a particular side in the referendum campaign. But um, whether, it, you know, really for, for either side to win uh, the anti-abortion or indeed the uh, pro-choice side, they really need to talk to the middle ground. Does this re- Will the rape trial and its verdict influence those towards May 25th? I, I, I genuinely don't, I don't see it. Um, I think it has sparked a conversation, but I think in the nature of the way things go, Life moves, you know, life in a way moves on, the conversation moves on, whether it'll still be at the forefront of people's mind when we vote on May 25th, I, I don't know. Well, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Sarah and Fiek for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And your views are always very welcome. You can email me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 